Well, the question I want you to consider and I want us to consider today as we, as we look at this passage in Genesis 22, and you can write this down if you like, it's, it's what are you willing to sacrifice for the Lord? Abraham was called by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, whom he dearly loved. So you, are you ready and willing to obey the Lord and to offer whatever Isaac uh, he calls upon you to sacrifice for him? Are you? All right, I can't keep this up any longer. (laughs) Not with a straight face. I, I hope that as I start that way, some of you are silently debating, what do I do? Do I throw something at him? Do I get up and leave? I'm waiting for like a, a gong sound on somebody's app or something like, get off the stage, you know. No, lest there's any confusion, if you wrote that down in your notes, you can go ahead and cross that out. That's, that's, if you wrote Justin's missing the point, then you can, you can leave that and you get a gold star afterwards or something, but... But this is a passage, and many of you are aware of this, this is a passage that's been used by many a preacher to, to kind of pound the pulpit and pummel the congregation with that kind of charge. But to, to make that point from this passage is to miss the primary point of the passage. This is not primarily, primarily about Abraham and his obedience to God. Be like Abraham, be willing to sacrifice for God whatever is most precious to you. The, the, the emphasis is, is rather it's on the Lord and it's on his provision of the sacrificial lamb so that his people can live. And so there, there is something, of course, to learn from Abraham's example here of, of, of faith, absolutely. But I pray that our minds will be consumed as we leave this place today, that our minds will be consumed uh, and, and we will walk out here thinking not about Abraham, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, but about the Lord's willingness to provide a substitute for us and so hold that thought and we'll come back to it we're moving I realize a lightning speed through Genesis 12 through 50 here and and we're not covering everything we're just kind of touching on some of the highest peaks and trust me this is one of the hardest parts about this is deciding what those peaks we should settle on are but we're looking at God's unrelenting grace to his people and so to uh, to, and and to the people of promise, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and, and jo- Joseph. And so despite of their failures, God shows relentless grace. They keep messing up. God keeps rescuing them and blessing them. They, they seem to put God's promise in jeopardy over and over and over. But, but, but nothing is going to thwart God's gracious plan. Nothing will nullify his covenant promises to his people. And so... In the preceding chapters, we were in Genesis 15 last week, and so between there and where we are at today, God has made his covenant-keeping love, his unrelenting grace, crystal clear to Abraham. Back in chapter 17, uh, you know, I turn there, but the, the Lord marked Abraham and his, and his people as belonging to him with, through circumcision. So in Genesis 17, verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So he keeps rehearsing, repeating this covenant that he's made to Abraham. I will be God to you. You will be my people. And so then God gives him this sign to to signify his commitment to bless Abraham and his offspring. This sign of circumcision. 
And so it's not, circumcision wasn't just like a badge of, of national membership in the Jewish nation. It, it was that, but it was a physical sign of the loving, identifying, defining relationship that the Lord has with his people. And so in the New Testament, we know this, this is pointing forward to, to Christ and the work that he came to accomplish. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, marked as belonging to the Lord. And then there's another way that the Lord has, has, has ratcheted down and shown his, his unrelenting love and, and commitment to keep his covenant with Abraham. And, and it's, it's, it's in God keeping his promise to provide Abraham a son. So in Genesis 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. So from father to father of a multitude. He also changed his wife's name to Sarah and said to Abraham, I will give you a son by her. Genesis 17, 15. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings shall come from her. And so Abraham's response to that, that uh, rehearsal of God's promise to him is this. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? I mean, he says it's utterly impossible hoping for one child, let alone descendants that number as great as the stars in the sky. It seemed ridiculous beyond all reason. So he tries to kind of help God out, give God an out here. And so he, he comes back to the Lord and says, Oh, that Ishmael, that's the son of his son, his son by his servant, uh, Hagar. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So go that route, God. God's answer is clear, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So hold that thought. That's going to be important as we get to Genesis 22. So Ishmael will be made into a great nation, was made into a great nation. They, 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 they will, he will not be the one through whom the covenant is kept in the, the line of promise, but it will be Isaac who will continue that line of promise. That's what God says. And he will be the one to inherit everything that was promised to Abraham. A land, the blessing, uh, the nation, the descendants, and on and on and on. So later, just like Abraham laughed when, when, at the absurdity of God's promise of a son in their old age, so Sarah also laughs when she hears the Lord repeat this this promise. And so God hears her laughter and calls her upon calls her on it. Genesis 18, 14, he says to is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the at the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Now you fast forward to Genesis 21, verses 1 and 2, and we read this The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. God, God did it. And God, God assured Abraham again with this, this, this son that he's provided, this promise that God kept. 
And, 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 and so, and Isaac is born. Isaac's name means laughter, or he laughed. And, and so Isaac's born. Now, this is not, though, simply a kind of a human interest story about this old man and this old woman who wanted a kid but couldn't have one, and finally God fulfills their desire for a, a son. That's not all this is. The birth of Isaac shows that God's promise is alive. And that's huge. If, if Abraham ever wondered whether God's covenant keeping love was still upon him, even after his failures, even after his unbelief, even after his laughter, if he wondered whether God's grace was truly unrelenting towards him, he could look at those bright, laughter-eyed fills of his own uh, eyes of his own son and see that God was indeed faithful to keep all his promises. He says God provides these things. And so he received these promises of God, not because he and Sarah worked up enough faith, not because uh, they, 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 were, they were because of who they were. It was grace given to them in spite of their unbelief, in spite of their doubt, in spite of their laughter. God was faithful to Abraham, not because of Abraham's faithfulness, but in spite of his faithlessness. That's what stands out here. God kept all of his promises to Abraham, even though Abraham did not keep his promises to God. What wonderful encouragement that is to us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? I mean, this is us. This is wonderful news for people like us that we have made so many promises to God that we have not kept. We've promised to build our lives on the foundation of the word of God, and yet we can go a whole week without reading our Bibles, and then we finally realize on Saturday night, oh, I think I left it there last Sunday. So we, so we, we, we promise, but we, we don't come through. We promise to raise our children in the teaching and admonition of the Lord, and and yet we, we nag about homework and we nag about how much time they're on their devices, but we don't speak the promises of God over our children and the grace of God to them. We promise to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and yet we walk in lockstep with the world around us. I mean, the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is even though we fail, and boy do we, and we, we fail in keeping our promises to God, he keeps his promises to us. So now we get to Genesis 22. We have this, this, this the grandest demonstration of God's unrelenting grace and covenant-keeping love in a very strange way. And so this, this isn't, as I said earlier, it's not a testimony about the greatness of Abraham and his obedience. That's not what it's primarily about. It, it, it's, a, it's a testimony to the greatness of the grace of the Lord. God providing a sacrifice in our place. Now, the story is generally acknowledged to be one of the greatest stories in all of ancient literature, just in terms of its literary value. I was, I, when I asked Steve to read scripture, I told him that. I said, no pressure as you read this for us tomorrow, but it, it's powerful. It's, in, it's infuriating. It's, it's beautiful. It's terrifying. It's certainly riveting. As, as, as we read through this, people are spending centuries debating all of the possible levels of meaning in this text. So we're going to figure it all out this morning. Um, probably not. But, I, but I, I do think we will get to, and this is what I'm praying, that we will get to the marrow, to the meat of, of what we're to get from this, what we're to learn from this, how we're to be changed by this. And we'll do it by considering kind of two headings, the, 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 the horror of the test and the wonder of the Lamb. The horror of the test and the wonder of the lamb. So imagine the joy in Abraham's and Sarah's household when Isaac is born. The, the little, little, little laughter, that was his name. He no doubt brought all kinds of joy, brought all kinds of 
uh, joy into their tent, into their community, and what a wonderful time. Per- perhaps the only person who didn't find joy in Isaac's birth was Ishmael. Uh, we, we learned that from the text, and, and Sarah, Sarah can't stand Ishmael's mocking of Isaac. And so she demands that Hagar and her son Ishmael, they, they leave and, are, and, and they're to be sent away. And so Abraham's reluctant, if you remember, but by sending Hagar and Ishmael away, what does he do? He tightens his grip on God's word that Isaac will be the son of promise. And so that is what comes out of that. And so because Isaac was the child that God promised, to, that, that, that he would be the first of countless descendants, what God tells Abraham to do next seems to make no sense to us. Again, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So let's look, let's consider the, the, the true horror of this test. He says, your, this is your only son, the only one left. Ishmael's gone, but, but beyond that, he's the only bearer of the family inheritance, the only hope of a future, and he's the only son of the promise. Your only son, and, and he also says, the son whom you love. Isaac is, is like Abraham's emotional center, and you can understand why. Hundred and hundred years waiting for a son, thinking there was no hope, and God provides this son whose name's laughter, and, and he's their joy and his delight. Oh, how they loved Isaac, no doubt. And God instructed Abraham to take his precious son up on that mountain, slaughter him as a burnt offering, a sacrifice for sin. His corpse would be completely consumed, and the smoke would rise up to God as an offering. That's what he's calling him to do. We say, what? I mean, again, the, the, the kind of the traditional approach to this passage in the church has been something like this. And interestingly, it's the same approach that Muslims take. This, this account is in the Quran, and, and it's not, he, he's not, the son is not named in the Quran, but Muslims traditionally say this is Ishmael, not Isaac, who's offered up. But it's the same story and, and, and so the traditional approach of the church and Islam is this. It's, the moral of the story is no matter how outrageous, no matter how crazy, no matter how costly the command of God is, do it. That's what we're to take from it. Do whatever God says. Obey God perfectly. Obey God unflinchingly. No matter how crazy the command is, do it anyway. There's the sermon. It's almost as if God is, is seen to be giving this kind of cruel dare, like some college guys will do to one another. I dare you to go over there and kick that puppy or something like that. I, like it, it be, I mean, it, it, your face value, if, if this is all your understanding, is this Abraham, God calling Abraham to sacrifice a child, is, like, is, is that all this is? It's like just a cruel test to see, are you willing to obey me? Just, just no matter how crazy or cruel the command, we're supposed to obey God without hesitation. Listen, I am all for unconditional obedience to God. That is not, God is the, not, the one and only non-negotiable in the entire universe. What he says goes, period. He, there, there's no posture to take before the Lord other than this, 
Lord, whatever you ask, whatever you say, I will do. Wherever you send me, I will go. That is to be our posture, brothers and sisters. That's it. We can't pick and choose his commands to obey. He is Lord God Almighty. And so that's not on the table here. But I think there's a problem with reading this passage as that or as only that. That's not the primary point. There's a problem with seeing this passage as just a always obey God no matter how outlandish the command kind of, kind of story. There's a problem with seeing this as being all about Abraham's obedience. And here's the thing. At a strictly ethical level, the story just doesn't work. There's, there's a Danish philosopher, air quote, theologian, um, he's a, he was a very skeptical, but from the 19th century, a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, and, and, and probably the book that he's most famous for writing is a little book called Fear and Trembling, and it's, it's on this account in Genesis 22. And he was deeply troubled that he would hear, hear people, hear Christians and churches talk about how inspired they were by the Abraham Isaac story here. Abraham offering Isaac up as a sacrifice. So he wrote this little book basically to unsettle readers and to kind of highlight the moral dilemma of the story. Um, and so he did this by imagining a preacher who's, who's preaching a sermon on, on how the moral of the story is just that. No matter how, how outrageous the demands of God, if you do it, you show your submission to him. And, and that's the point of this. And so he imagines someone sitting in his congregation who says, okay. And he goes home and he kills his son. And then in the next Sunday, the same minister is, is furious and he thunders against this terrible and wicked act. What kind of father, what kind of monster would do something like this? And what he wants to know is if that man is condemned, why wasn't Abraham condemned? And, and if you're just looking at it at an ethical level, we, we see that tension. And so a lot of, a lot of people, non-religious people, even professing Christians, they, they come to this account and they say, hey, Abraham really failed the test. He should have looked at God and said, no, forget it. Like that was what God, that was the test. And that's crazy though. But here's what I want you to see. Out of the inspirational approach to this passage, we should do whatever God says, no matter how crazy. It doesn't get to the real, the true horror of the test. This isn't a random, cruel dare that God kind of made up on the fly to see if Abraham was truly committed to him. It's not what this is. We need to understand that this command actually, what, it, what this command actually meant to Abraham in his context in order to grasp the true terror of this test. And so a couple things to note. One, God does not tell Abraham to murder his son. That's not what he says. If God was just saying, I want you to do the most outrageous thing and prove your obedience to me, I want you to murder your son. There wouldn't be a need for going up into the mountains. There wouldn't be a need for taking wood for, the off, or for, the, for, for fire. No, God calls Abraham to offer his firstborn up as an offering. As an offering. And because he's asked to offer him up his firstborn as an offering, listen, secondly, the command here to Abraham's ears was not, was not really incomprehensible. I know it is to ours, but, but we have to understand a couple things. We have to understand the, the meaning of the firstborn to understand what's going on. And so ancient Near Eastern cultures like, like um, where Abraham's living, they were not individualistic like ours. 
That, that, that we have a tendency to think of all of our hopes, all of our dreams for a future, for success. We, we, we think of this as a matter of individual success, individual prosperity. But nobody thought that way in Abraham's day. Nobody did. All your hopes, all your dreams were tied to family success, family prosperity. And so the individual was always subordinate to the family and to community. That's the opposite of the way we tend to think in this culture. And so, and here's the thing, the ancient Near East world, they had this unbending law of the firstborn. Unbending law of the the firstborn, it's called primogenitor. And so this was something that was universally practiced in ancient Near Eastern cultures, and and, and again, it's very different from ours. But in most families here today, if, if parents die, you usually have the will that's drawn up, you know, before, and the estate's generally divided between the kids. I know there are exceptions because of different circumstances, but... That's kind of the the normal course. But in ancient Near East culture, that would never happen. The firstborn got everything, the entire inheritance. I'm sorry, middle children. Sorry, babies of the family. I would have got nothing either, so I'm with you. But here's why. Your family, again, family's everything, not the individual. So a family had a certain amount of land and prosperity and wealth. And if it was divided between three or seven or 12 Kids, the family would immediately lose status and, and, and lose their place in the community. A few generations, and it basically, it would all be gone. You just keep dividing it out. And so the firstborn got, got everything. And then that firstborn was like the, the family benefactor so that, to make sure that every, all the other kids were, were taken care of. So that's how the family kept its place. Again, family was greater than individual. And so what's interesting, of course, is we'll see through Genesis, God is, is continually undermining this, this, this law of the firstborn. And so God works through Abel, not Cain. God works through Isaac, not Ishmael. God, God will work through Jacob, not Esau. And so, but, but even so, there's this basic structure that's laid down throughout the scripture, and it's stated like this, the life of the firstborn is mine. God said that. So the firstborn cattle are sacrificed to God. The first fruits of the grain uh, are always sacrificed to God. Over and over in Scripture, you find the life of the firstborn belongs to me. Exodus 13, 2. Exodus 22, 29, 30. Numbers 3, 13. And we could look at other passages. So you have the example of this is in the Passover, the last plague where the, the firstborn died. God brings judgment on the Egyptians for all their oppression, for all their enslavement, all their wickedness to to God's people, and what does he do? He, the, the, the life of the firstborn are forfeited in that judgment. And during the Passover, the Jewish, the Jewish firstborn aren't exempt. God says they're going to die too, unless, unless a lamb is slain in their place. His blood is applied to the doorpost. Over and over, God says, the life of the firstborn is, is mine. It's forfeit. It's unless it's redeemed. Unless it's redeemed, unless there's a sacrifice made in, in Numbers 1860, unless there's a, a payment made, and which was five shekels. So what's this, what's this all about? All right, I'm, I don't want to lose you yet, but this is, this is important to understand the, the true meaning of this passage. See, Abraham understood what we don't in our modern Western uh, minds and situations and contexts. Abraham realized that when God said, the life of the firstborn is mine, What God is really saying is this, there is a debt of sin that every family owes me. 
So this command, it's not incomprehensible to Abram like it, Abraham like it is to us. This is what I mean. If Abraham had heard a voice um, saying to him, Abraham, go uh, kill your wife Sarah, you know, then I'll know that you trust and obey me. If, if he had heard a voice say that, Abraham would never have done that. He would have said, I must be hallucinating. I must be what I ate last night. Something's not selling. That, like, that's crazy. That would, be, that, would be, uh, that would be immoral. That would be illegal. That would be murder. God forbids that. So there's no way I would do, he would do anything like that. But when God says, Abraham, offer up your firstborn son. As gut-wrenching, and don't get me wrong, it is as gut-wrenching as that would be. Abraham would have had a category for that. He would have understood it. Abraham knew that the Lord was a God of justice. And he knew all human beings are full of sin. The world is a mess because of it. And a God of justice cannot overlook sin. Payment must be made. There's a debt that every family owes to justice. Every human being owes the debt of sin. And Abraham knew this. And when God says, offer up your son Isaac... Abraham realizes what God is doing is he's calling in that debt. He gets it. Now here's the problem, though. Here's the true horror of the test. And we get a clue in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, that uh, we're, we're recounting the, the faith of God's people. Hebrews 11, verse 17, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, referring to this passage, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Of whom it was said, verse 18, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now listen. Alright, if I have already lost you, I'm sorry. But if I've still got you, just hang in with me here. This is the true horror of the test. That the command of God apparently contradicted the promise of God. The command of God is an apparent contradiction with the promise of God. So the, the horror of the test is this, is that Isaac is the son of promise. To put him to death would, be, would seem to be putting the whole covenant into jeopardy. To put the promise of a savior in jeopardy. And so along with the agony, and, and enormous agony of, of putting to death the son who brought so much joy to your life in that natural sort of way, that's the kind of where we tend to cap it off. We're trying to reconcile how, how, how a loving God can make a command like this, and we have this, we have this love for our children as parents, and so we tend to stall out there. But it's deeper than that. What, what he's struggling with is to harmonize the command of God to sacrifice Isaac which was, was just, was, which was, he understood was a payment for sin. So to, to, to harmonize that command of God with the promise of God when God said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac and his descendants after him. Like, how does that work? The command of God is just. There is a debt of sin that needs to be paid. But the promise of God was that through Isaac the promise would be preserved. So he's saying, how can the God of command be the God of promise? How can the God of justice and holiness be the God of grace? How can the God who rightly calls in this debt of sin also be the God who says through Isaac, my covenant to build a nation and bless the world will be kept forever? 
How is this going to happen? What, what's happening here? That's the true horror of this test for Abraham. It's, it's about something much more frightening, as, as hard as this is for us to comprehend, than child sacrifice. It's the fear of utter God-forsakenness. That's it. I'm going to read a quote. I, I'm sorry this isn't on the screen so you can follow along, but uh, Gerhard von Rad, he's a German commentator. I, he gets it to this, I think, very well in a, in a way that I probably could have read this 20 minutes ago and you just said, all right, got it, move on. Um, but he says this, Above all, one must consider Isaac who is much more than simply a foil for Abraham, which is often how we treat this. You know, we treat him, as he says, just, a, just as more or less an accidental object on which his obedience is to be proved. No, he says, Isaac is the child of promise. In him, every saving thing that God has promised to do is invested and guaranteed. The point here is not a natural gift, not even the highest. And how can we conceive of a higher natural gift than an only son? He says that's not the point, but rather the disappearance from Abraham's life of the whole promise. The Lord appears to want to remove the salvation begun by himself from history. He's calling Abraham to a road of utter God-forsakenness. You get it. You see the, the horror of this test. How can God be both the God of command and the God of promise? How will God be both, to borrow New Testament language, how can God be both just and the justifier of Abraham and his descendants? So, I, I hope that you see that. The, the, the dark horror of the test is the, is the backdrop we need for the, the brightness of what we're about to see in the verses that follow. The wonder of the Lamb. And so let's behold the, the true wonder of Lamb here in verses 7 and following. So on, on this day, this day which was, was, was probably no doubt filled with joy and laughter when it began, and this, this call from God comes to Abraham, that laughter comes to an abrupt end. We're not told how Abraham felt. We're, we're told in very plain language, matter-of-factly, what he did. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, making his, making, uh, with his son Isaac. And, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. So he doesn't drag his feet. He doesn't argue with God. Early in the morning, he, he, he lives out his faith through this obedience. Faith that would be strengthened through this test. And so no doubt, as 100-year-old Abraham, Abraham's cutting that wood, preparing this for the sacrifice of his own son, that he's mulling over the true horror of this test, what we were just talking about, in a deeper way than we tend to think. How can God be true to his promise if Isaac is dead? How? How? What's going to happen? What's, what's God going to do to, to remain uh, the God of promise? And so this, this pondering probably continued through this three-day journey. It's a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. So by the time he got to the place where he parted company with his servants, he didn't know how the Lord would intervene, but it seems that he was convinced that God 
would come through, that the outcome of his sacrifice would not be the end of Isaac, would not be the end of his promise. So verse 4, read there with me. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Just imagine. It's beautifully written, powerfully written. He sees this place of sacrifice off in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy. Boy, the late the word here and, and from the dating, he's probably, he's probably around 10 years old. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I and the boy will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went on, so they went both of them together. The writer of Hebrew tells us precisely uh, what his words there, I, am, I, am, I and the boy will come again to you. This seems to be his conclusion of all of that thinking that he's been going through. Hebrews eleven nineteen says that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So in a sense he did, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So Abraham no, had no idea how it would happen, but he knew that the, the life that had been given to him from the dead parts of his own body, that's how the language the Bible uses, he knew that God had promised it would be through Isaac that the descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. So he puts two and two together and he reasons that the same God who brought Adam to life from the dust of the ground could bring Isaac back to life from the ashes of his body. And so he fully intended to sacrifice Isaac as God had commanded, but after three days of thinking through, it seems that he's come to this conclusion that maybe God would raise Isaac from the dead. Now, you can say that all you want, but any confidence he had in that conclusion, it had to be rattled when Isaac speaks up here. And he breaks the silence as they're climbing up this awful mountain. So, so this is the emotional peak of the narrative. This is this is the most poignant spot in the whole story here. And, and, and it's like the narrator just puts it in slow motion and slows the story down. I mean, it's very fast up to this point. God says, go sacrifice your son. Abraham gets up early. He goes, they travel. They're doing these things. And then it slows down. And, and it slows way down. And Isaac speaks up. This is the only place in the Bible where we hear Abraham and Isaac speak to one another. Verse 7, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. That's beautiful. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide him for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So, so what is Abraham's answer to Isaac? What's he saying? What, what, what's pushing Abraham up that mountain? With his son carrying that wood that he's going to be sacrificed upon. Was he going up the mountain saying, I can do this. I can do this because this is all about my obedience. I can do it. I must do it. I will do this. That's not what's in his heart. No, as it wasn't Abraham's iron will to obey God that compelled him up that mountain. He's not giving himself a pep talk under his breath. You can do this, Abraham. You can do it. You got this. Don't make eye contact. Just keep walking one step in front of the other. No, what's giving him the ability to go up that mountain? God will do it. God, God will see to it. God will provide. God will provide the lamb. I don't know how. God will do it. I don't know, Isaac. I don't know, but God does. 
So the word he uses here, it provides, it's, it's literally a word to see or to see to. So he's saying basically, my son, you can't see the lamb. Oh, my son, I can't see the lamb. God, God will see. God will see to the lamb. He's saying essentially, I don't know how God is going to be both holy and gracious. I don't know how God's going to have this debt of sin paid and satisfied and still be the God of promise. I don't know, but he will provide. He will do it. That's what's getting him up the hill. Not I can do it, not I must do it, not I will do it. But God will do it. God will provide. And so they arrive at the place, they build the altar, they arrange the wood. There's nothing left to do but bind Isaac and put him... Uh, to, to, to place him on that pile of wood, plunge the knife into his flesh. I mean, again, clearly a, a boy who's able to carry all of that wood, that he can escape from a 110-year-old man, <laughs> but he doesn't. There's, he doesn't resist. He doesn't run. It's only when the knife is lifted above Isaac that God stops him. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So by raising his hand with every intention of carrying out God's instructions, Angel is saying, you, you've demonstrated that you now fear God. You fear the Lord more than you fear losing whatever it is that God has given to you. Your son, even the promise that God has made. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So, so just as we understand that the true horror of the test was, being, was, was more than child sacrifice, so the provision of the lamb is, simp- is more than simply stopping child sacrifice. It's more than that. God is just and the justifier. God is holy and he is gracious to keep his promise. And so the mountain, it doesn't become a monument to Abraham's obedience, but to God's provision. It's not on the mount of the Lord, it shall be obeyed. But it's on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Not on the mount of the Lord, I will do it, but on the mount of the Lord, God, God will do it. And so what, what Abraham was willing to do is this dramatic demonstration of loving obedience to God, unconditional obedience to God. But again, this story isn't primarily recorded for us to inspire us to sacrificial acts of obedience to God. It's here to paint in vivid colors the sacrifice of God. What God was willing to sacrifice to demonstrate his love for us. And this is the way the story was interpreted by ancient Israelites. And understood. This is how it was applied. Uh, Gerhard von Red, he goes on to say, When Israel read and related this story in later generations, it could only see itself represented by Isaac. Laid on Yahweh's altar, given back to him, then given life again by him alone. That is to say, it could base its existence only on the will of him who in freedom of his grace permitted Isaac to live. You know what he's saying? 
He's saying the point is not to see yourself in Abraham. The point is to see yourself in Isaac. Primarily. Of course, with the full revelation of God in Scripture, on this side of the cross, we know, we know far more than Abraham understood about the significance of this in God's eternal plan. We know that Abraham's you know, lamb, who is Isaac, could not ultimately pay the price for the sin of his family. Isaac had his own sins to pay for. He was born in sin. And then, of course, we know the ram that's caught in the bushes. Uh, what does the book of Hebrews say? It says what, what common sense tells us. It says the, the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin, not fully, not finally. And so in Second Chronicles, we find out that, that um, uh, he says that Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Second Chronicles 3.1. So the, the temple is built in this mountain group, cluster. So Mount Calvary is part of this range. These were part of the mountains of Moriah. So the question is, why didn't Abraham have to bring his hand down upon his son? Why did God stop him? Was the debt really not that significant? No. How could God be both the God of justice and command and the God of promise and grace? Well, because centuries later, what happened? God the Father led his beloved son, the firstborn of all creation. He led his beloved son into those same mountains. And the one and only son, the only one ever without sin, was put on the wood. (laughs) Think about that. And Paul, as Patrick alluded to, Paul deliberately applies these words of Genesis 22 to Jesus in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? I mean, the ultimate point of the story in Genesis 22, it's, again, it's not trying to convince you or convict you that you must be willing to sacrifice to God whatever is most precious to you. It's about what God was willing to sacrifice, that God was willing to sacrifice what was most precious to him. That's where it ultimately points. In Abraham's day, God provided a ram as a substitute to sacrifice in the place of of Abraham's son. But what Abraham really learned from this experience and what we must see in this experience is at the proper time, God would provide a human sacrifice, his very own son, to die as our substitute. That has to be part of the reason. Remember Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. When Abraham saw the day of Christ as were the, the test that made no sense to him at the time, it finally made perfect sense as Christ was crucified on that cross. When the day came that God the Father offered up his own beloved son as a sacrifice, surely Abraham, if he could have, he could have stood at, that, at the foot of that cross beholding his Savior hanging there on that tree and, and echoed the words that he heard God say to him on that mountain. Now I know, now I know you love me. Now I know you're a God of of relentless grace. Now I know you're a God of covenant-keeping love. How? Because I see that you have not withheld your own son, the son whom you love from me. What a demonstration. Brother and sister in Christ, do you struggle? Do you struggle to believe in God's unrelenting grace towards you? Even though you're in Christ, do you, uh, do you doubt his covenant-keeping faithful love to you? 
How do you deal with those doubts? Do you look to the circumstances in your life and try to interpret them in a, in a way that helps kind of soothe your, 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 your doubts? Do you look to other people and compare yourself horizontally to other people? Is that, is that how you just try to keep your sanity? Do you, do you just resolve to try harder? I will do it. I must do it. I will get up that mountain. I will provide. What, what, what we find over and over, what the New Testament makes crystal clear and what Genesis 22 is pointing to is what would you do? We come to the mountain. We look up at the cross and say, the Lord has provided. The Lord has provided. Jesus walked the road of utter God forsakenness in our place. And so you remember Isaac's question to Abraham, where, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? The question would be asked again and again and again throughout the centuries after this. Where's the lamb? When will he come? Isaiah 53, this prophecy of this, this lamb who will be sacrificed. When, when will he show up? When will he save us? Where's the lamb who will die for our sins once and for all? Well, centuries later, Isaac's question is finally answered. John the Baptist, you, you know the scene. He's, he's, he sees Jesus coming toward him. John's in a river baptizing people. What, a, what an imagery for us this morning. And what does he say? As he sees Jesus, he says, behold, see, get this. Here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John recognized Jesus is the lamb that Isaac, that all the Israelites who descended from him have been looking for, had been waiting for, the lamb who would ultimately die in their place. Pay the price for sin and, and give the assurance of promised covenant blessings for eternity. The lamb who would die on the cross, the place where perfect justice and grace meet. This is a reminder. This is what we remember even as we see these baptisms. These aren't testimonies to I will do it, I must do it, I can do it, I will provide. These are testimonies the Lord has provided a lamb in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us now as we sing to rejoice in these glorious truths. Lord, you, you, the, the, to whatever extent our, our, heart is, our hearts are troubled, um, by our own failures, Father, that we would look to Christ. We would look to Christ. When we doubt your love, Lord, we will look to Christ. And so use the song now as we, we, we re rehearse the glorious truth of the death and, and triumphant resurrection of Christ as we see it pictured in baptism. Father, use these things to minister to our people as a testimony to your sovereign grace and covenant-keeping love to your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.